0: Several weeks ago, we began a series in the book of Acts. We got one week into it, and then the storm hit. That threw us for a loop for a bit. And um, we have had on the calendar, the preaching calendar, for some time to do a series this month on the Protestant Reformation. And so we um, are going to do that for these next five Sundays. Take a look at the five solas of the Reformation. Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Grazia, Sola Christos, Sola Dea Gloria. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. In doing that, I want to do my best to tell you a story. Maybe a little bit into what the Protestant Reformation is, or maybe just bit of how it got started I have read and read and read and read and reread and reread and reread and and reread this week because I've never done anything like this I'm not a great church historian I promise you that and so it took a lot of work for me this week just to try to get my my mind around just just really a handful of incidents that happened back in the 16th century I hope to do a good job with it this morning. I hope to give you a flavor of what was happening and really a spark that got us where we are today, 500 years later. In the late Middle Ages, we sometimes refer to them to the, as the Dark Ages, but in the late Middle Ages, the Catholic Church was in need of reform. Catholic scholars even today will admit that. There was a lot of things that were going on within the church of the medieval period that was just not right. There was lots of corruption among the popes and the bishops and the priests and the like. There was among the people all throughout the Holy Roman Empire, poverty and struggle in the sense that those at the top of the church didn't much care. At the same time, there was a lot that was happening in the world, a lot of exciting things happening in the world. Columbus discovering the new world. Travel to the far east was becoming a more regular occurrence. No longer was the earth seen as flat. There were insights into those kinds of things that had people thinking some new things were on the horizon. The Turks had defeated The church in the east of Constantinople and many of the people and among them the scholars had fled Constantinople to the west into Rome and brought with them ancient manuscripts that they did not have with learning and with ideas that got people thinking maybe not only is there corruption within the church but maybe there are some false ideas within the church that need to be rethought. There was a growing nationalism among many of the people throughout that part of the world, in Germany in particular. They didn't like Rome, and they wanted to, if you will, stick it to the man in many ways. And so there's this growing sense of maybe something was on the horizon. Some within the church in the centuries prior had taken aim at Reformation, guys like John Wycliffe and John Huss. But in the providence of God, they didn't have much success. They were killed for what they believed and the reformation that they were trying to bring. But in the providence of God, another man came on the scene. In 1483, in Eisleben, Germany, Martin Luther was born. He was born to a minor... And his daddy had great hopes for young Martin, that Martin himself would not become a minor also, but that he would go to school and he would become educated and that he would become a lawyer and that he would have much more success than daddy had. And history tells us that daddy pushed him really hard, as did his teachers. And in fact, in the early 1500s, 1500, 1501, 1502, Martin went off to school And he got his degrees, and he was set on a life of being a lawyer. And then, in July of 1505, Martin was out on a walk, and a lightning bolt struck nearby. He was in a thunderstorm. It knocked him to the ground, and in his own words, he cried out to Saint Anne, who was the patron saint of miners. She was also the patron saint of thunderstorms. And he cried out, Saint Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. That was on July 2nd, 1505. Ten days later, he presents himself to the Augustinian monastery to be a monk. Much to the disappointment of his dad his dad was not happy at all but martin was going to be a monk some of the scholars play around with this a little bit was it merely the lightning bolt that sent him in to the monastery some think it was him pushing back at dad the dad had great hopes for him to be a lawyer but Even young Martin was a religious boy, becoming a religious young man. He had his fears of giving himself to a life as a lawyer when there were eternal matters at hand that were so deep within his soul. So maybe it wasn't simply that the lightning bolt had struck, but it was also him fighting against this calling upon his life that dad was pushing him into. But either way, mid-July, 1505, he becomes a monk. And in the early days of being a monk, it, it seemed to have a consoling impression upon Martin. Such that in 1507, those who were in charge of him saw such promise, they believed he ought to become a priest. And so he was ordained, and he got to offer mass for the very first time and it was absolutely terrifying for him if you're familiar at all with the catholic doctrine of transubstantiation it is that the bread and the cup become the body and the blood of jesus christ and so the idea you know we often talk about in our tradition what you know if you were to stand before a holy god and we kind of tremble at that. The idea of standing before a holy God. Well, Martin was having to deal with if you were holding a holy God. And that first mass of holding, if that's what you believed, and that you were holding the, the very body of Christ and the blood of Christ, he was terror-stricken by it. Because he was growing more and more impressed with the absolute holiness of God. And the absolute sinfulness of his soul. And don't think, when we say the absolute sinfulness of his soul, that he was this immoral, licentious man. He was the best of monks. But the more he looked at himself, the more he realized, I am a sinner. And part of the, gr- the graces, if you will, within Catholicism, you, you, you wanted to receive grace, and you did so through the sacraments. And so Martin gave himself to that over and over, in particular the the sacrament of penance. When you would confess your sins and you would receive absolution from the priest. But Martin began to confess his sins and he would confess and confess and confess and confess and confess. And 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 the the deeper he went within his soul, he just saw more and more and more and more. What happens if you don't confess all of your sins? There are stories of him going to confession and confessing and confessing and confessing, coming out and realizing, oh, there's one that I forgot. He was having a very, very hard time of it. One of those who was over him within the monastery instructed him to begin to read the mystics. They had come onto the scene in the 1400s, I believe it was, and these were a bit of reformers within the Catholic Church as well, who were writing about and encouraging the experience of the love of God. And so Luther did this, not because he was rejecting the church's authority, he he was doing it because the, the one in authority over him had told him to, and so he began to read the mystics, and try to experience the love of God. And while it maybe initially had some sway upon him, at the end of the day, it was empty for him. Because the only vision he had in his mind of God was that of holiness and justice, much like he had seen in his father and in his teacher's And if you don't measure up the hammer. And so it's famous in Luther's life, the idea of being called upon to love God. Love God? I hate Him. It's 1510. He was given an opportunity to travel to Rome. A journey to the the place, to the spot. It's like a pilgrimage and he went with great hopes of what he might see and what he might experience but the reality of his journey it didn't get him anywhere the corruption that he saw the anguish of soul that he experienced there was no hope for him to be found He came back to the monastery, and not long later, those who were in charge of him encouraged him why don't you become a professor at a fairly new college in Wittenberg, Germany? And so he did. He went and he studied and he got his theology degree, and in 1513, at the church or at the um, University of Wittenberg, he began to teach the Scriptures, to do exposition of the book of Psalms. Once he finished the book of Psalms, he went into the book of Romans. In 1515, Martin Luther begins not only studying the book of Romans, but teaching it to his students. And this is where we believe the light really began to shine within his soul. He stumbled upon, or in his studies, he came to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For The Apostle Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And Luther pondered upon verse 17 in particular for quite some time. Because for him, the righteousness of God was that which he was most most fearful of. God is absolutely righteous. I'm a sinner. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But at the same time, the verse says, the righteous shall live by faith. Upon pondering it and pondering it, he came to the insight that this righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel, is not the judging righteousness of God. It is the gift of righteousness earned by Jesus Christ's holy life that is given Imputed to a person who puts their faith in Jesus. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from beginning to end. He came to realize that a person is not saved by their own righteousness by their own works in order to secure the grace of god as it comes through the sacraments no a person is saved because the very righteousness of god is given as a gift to those who believe In reflecting upon that, he said that that heaven's gates were open to him. And he had found paradise. Where he hadn't found it in the works of the sacraments in order to secure the grace of God. Where he hadn't found it in the idea of loving God. Love him, I hate him. He had found it in the gospel. That the righteousness of God which God requires a man to have is given freely as a gift to the one who humbly believes. He began to ponder these things and he began to teach these things at Wittenberg. And he began to have influence with some of the other profs there at Wittenberg. He wrote... We're familiar with his 95 theses. He wrote 97 theses, nailed them on the castle door of the church there in Wittenberg. But guess what? Nobody cared. Just a few of the other profs at Wittenberg. But something happened. It's 1516 into 1517. The Pope Pope Leo X, he had this basilica of St. Peter's that he wanted to to work on. He also had this, this man named Albert of Brandenburg, who was part of this family of great power, and this family of great power was wanting more and more and more power within Germany. And so Albert came to the Pope and said, hey, I'd like to have the Archbishop position over the city of Mons in Germany and they struck a deal well you can have it Pope Leo was corrupt you can have it for 10,000 I think you pronounce it ducats. money you come up with the money and you can have that position and so they struck a deal and Leo said you know what that's a lot of money here's what we'll do too You can begin to sell indulgences throughout Germany to earn back some of the money that it's taking you. Just give me half of the proceeds. Well, what Albert did was he founded a Dominican monk named John Tetzel. And John Tetzel became the one who would go throughout Germany and would sell indulgences to the people. Now, what's an indulgence? An indulgence was an opportunity that you could have to buy a decrease on the time you would spend in purgatory for your sins. You got sins. And probably you have not received enough grace through your doing of the sacraments You're going to have to spend time in purgatory paying for your sins before you can go into heaven. But you can purchase an indulgence and it will decrease the time that you have to spend in purgatory. In fact, you can do this for your dead mama or your grandmama or your daddy or your friend. You can purchase an indulgence so that they don't have to spend as much time in purgatory. Who doesn't want to buy that for their mom? Well, John Tetzel and the guys that he had going throughout Germany, they would proclaim that their indulgences would make you cleaner than the waters of baptism. Would make you cleaner than Adam before the fall. They would say, that the cross that the seller of indulgences carried had as much power as the cross of Christ. And the famous little jingle was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, there were learned men and women in Germany who did not like this. But they saw it just as more corruption within the church. And there were the people of Germany who did not like it at all. It was just another case of being taxed by the church out of Rome in order to pay for their luxury. But what do you do? Martin Luther did something. He drew up this time 95 theses against this idea of indulgences. And he posted them on the castle doors there in Wittenberg. I think it's Castle Church doors of Wittenberg. He expected to get much the same response that he did with his 97 other theses, which was not much. But God was up to something. Because this time... It caught fire. At Dallas Seminary, whenever we would study in church history, and when we came to this particular point, Dr. Hannah John Hanna, would tell us, he'd say, now listen, don't think this all started, if you will, with Luther. There had been others before him who were spitting into the wind. You spit into the wind, what happens? It just blows back on you, right? Wycliffe and Huss, and others. Luther was just spitting into the wind, much like the others had. The only difference is, the wind changed. These 95 theses were written out of an emboldened heart And those within Wittenberg read them and said, yes. And they took his translation. He had written it in Latin. They translated it into German. They began to print them on the New Deal, the printing press, and spread them all throughout Germany. This thing was catching fire. One of the interesting things I learned this week is that Luther took a copy of his 95 Theses, wrote a nice cover letter, and sent it to Albert of Brandenburg. Albert was the one who was wanting all of this power in Germany. He was the one who hired John Tetzel to go do the whole indulgence thing. Well, Luther wrote him a nice letter and said, hey, I want you to have a copy of this. Brandenburg got it. Albert of Brandenburg got it. And he sent it to Pope Leo. Here's probably at the core what was going on. Those 97 theses that he had written earlier about some theological matters, very important stuff, but who cares? The 95 theses, now he's dealing with their money. And they did not like that. He was going to put an end to the cash cow of the selling of indulgences. And so Albert was putting pressure on Leo, as was the emperor Maximilius. Who is this rogue friar who's causing all of this trouble? Leo, do something about him. What Leo decided to do was send him... There was, there was going to be a meeting of the Augustinian monks. They had this meeting on a regular occasion. One was coming up, and so they, he sent Luther to this meeting of Augustinian monks in hopes that they would do something about their rogue monk. The only problem was, they liked his ideas. Especially some of the young monks who liked this renegade prof. And what they liked was you kind of had this competition between the Augustinian order of monks and the Dominican order of monks. Well, John Tetzel the seller of indulgences, was from the Dominican order. And they loved the fact that Martin Luther was kind of sticking it to him. And so the Augustinian order of monks didn't do anything to Luther. That was about 1518 in the early days. And so Pope Leo, what do I do about this? Later that year, there was going to be an imperial diet. You say, what's that? You know, I need to go on one kind of deal. An imperial diet. A diet was an assembly of the princes and the nobles of the land. These were pretty big deals. It was going to be later in the year of 1518 in Augsburg. And Luther was to appear there. Not to stand before the diet, but to meet with a fellow named Cajetan that Pope Leo had sent. And so in his meeting with Cajetan, Cajetan asked him, will you recant of everything that you've written? And Luther soon enough figured, as he began to, to discourse over the things that he believed and why he believed them, he, he quickly discovered that Cajetan was not there to talk. Cajetan was there to hear his him recant and if not to arrest him and take him to Rome and Luther snuck out of Augsburg at night in order to get away from this. So now what will Leo do? He's the Pope. He's got this happening in Germany. Luther is leading it all. The emperor died. Maximilius died. And there were two fellows who were in the running, if you will, to become the next emperor. One was Charles from Spain. Another one was Francis from France. And Pope Leo was kind of hoping that neither one of them would get this. But he's got to get a third guy into the race. So he goes after a guy named Frederick the Wise. Well, Frederick the Wise was the the guy in charge over Saxony where Wittenberg was. He knew Luther. He kind of liked Luther. At least he he wasn't sure that he was a heretic at this point, and he wanted to protect Luther to at least give him a fair trial. And so as Leo seeks to court Frederick the Wise, he sends a fellow, what was his name? His name was Miltitz. I want you to go, Miltitz, and I want you to talk to Frederick the Wise. And he took him a golden rose as a gift from the Pope. Talk to Frederick the Wise about becoming emperor and meet with Luther and talk with Luther and and see if we can calm this matter down. Well, Frederick the Wise, I think, essentially rejected the offer to become emperor But Luther essentially made a truce. If y'all will chill out on me, I'll chill out. This was in early 1519. And so there's a truce for a while. There was another prof at another school in Germany. And he did not like Martin Luther and his teachings. His name was John Eck. But he knew that there had been this truce and we weren't really to go after Luther anymore. And so what John Eck did was he went after another prof at Wittenberg who had come to believe all that Luther believed. Karlstad was his name. And so Eck challenged Karlstad to a debate. But it became clear that what they were going to debate over was all of Luther's ideas. And Luther said, you're not debating him, Karlstadt. I will debate him. So this happened in 1519 in Leipzig. And it happened over days. John Eck and Martin Luther, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And towards the end of this debate, as Luther would expound from Scripture, and Eck was an expert in canon law of the teaching of the Catholic Church, eventually, Luther said two things. That the Council of Constance that had happened a generation earlier that had condemned and killed John Huss Had erred. Martin Luther just said that the popes, the pope, and the council that put John Huss to death erred in doing so. And he said that a Christian with support of scripture has more authority than pope and council together. And John Eck heard that and said, there it is. So you agree with Huss. Huss had been labeled a heretic and had been put to death. You agree with Huss. Luther was now in a tough spot. What would come of this? In the next year, in June 15th, a papal bull, which is an announcement, a decree. This one was called exerge domine. So it's 1520. It's June. The Pope sends out this decree throughout all of Germany for the people to burn the books of Luther and that he had 60 days to appear in Rome. It took a while for this bull, this decree, to get to Luther. In the meantime, throughout Germany, you had some who were taking this decree and saying, okay, and so they would burn the books of Luther. You had others who were saying, no, Luther's our man, and they would burn the books of his opponents. He received the decree himself in October of 1520, and he let the clock go 60 days to December of 1520, would he appear in Rome? You burn my books, I burn your decree. And so there at the the college in Wittenberg, he burned the papal bull. Think about this, y'all. The Pope has power. And he burns the papal bull. Now what will Leo do? Remember we talked about how George was going to be king or it was going to be Francis and he was hoping Frederick the Wise. Well, George became the emperor. So Leo begins discussions with George, the emperor, about Luther. What will we do with him? And so the emperor calls Luther to account and to come to the Diet of Worms. Again, the Diet is an assembly of the princes and the nobles, the important folk. And Worms is a city in Germany. This Diet began in the early part of the year in 1521. It wasn't until April when Luther would appear before it. He arrived on April 16th of 1521 he stood before them first on April 17th of 1521. And here he is before all of these princes, the, the Emperor George V. And the man who was in charge showed him a bunch of books that he had written and said, Are these your books? Did you write them? Luther looked at them and said, Yes, I did. Will you recant? All that is in them. Luther's got a decision to make. He asked them, Can I have a night to think about it? And they granted it to him. So the next day, April 18th, 1521, this time, because there was an extra day given. People knew what was going to happen. The place was packed. You've had a night to think about it. Do you recant? And the history says that he basically remarked, some of these books contain simply Christian doctrine, which we all believe, even my opponents. I do not think it would be appropriate for me to recant on those. Others of them are written about the injustice done to the German people. That's not what this diet is about, and I think it would be an even greater injustice if I were to recant what is written in those. Some of them contain matters of theological importance and my differences with particular individuals. If I can be shown that I am wrong, I will recant. And the story goes that the guy that was in charge said, Luther, we didn't come here to debate. Do you recant over what you have written? And here's what he said. Unless I am convinced by Scripture In plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. Amen. And the history books tell us that he threw his arms up in victory as a victorious knight turned around and walked out the door. He's burned a papal bull and he has refused now to recant before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and turned around with his hands in the air as in victory. There's a handful of issues at stake, but at issue, at its core, who says, by what authority, This is one of the major, if not the major, issue of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago this month. In particular, October 31st, 1517 is the day that he nailed the 95 Theses to the door. But at its core, one of the main issues is who says, where does authority lie? And before that time, and as I understand it even to this day, within Roman Catholicism, authority lies with sacred Scripture, sacred tradition, as it is interpreted by the Pope and the Magisterium. Notice, I did not say sacred Scripture, sacred tradition, as interpreted by the Pope and the Magisterium the official teaching office of the church. No. Sacred Scripture, sacred tradition, and the interpretation of the Pope and the magisterium. These have equal authority. And ever since Wycliffe and Huss and Luther, Protestants have said, Oh no. Scripture. Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the final authority. Now we may read the Westminster Catechism, written by the Westminster Divines of the 1600s, an incredible document, incredible document, about God and his word and Christ and salvation and the church and the like. We may read the Baptist Confession of Faith and nod our head and say, what a great document. We have our own traditions to which we return time and time again. But as Protestants, we always say that these are not Scripture. Sola Scriptura. These are not our final authority. The final authority is the Word of God. It's time to go. Let me just read to you his words again. And encourage you and me as we leave here today to reaffirm what a gift the Word of God is. To reaffirm, to reaffirm not just our willingness. Should we ever be called before a papal, you know, an imperial diet? that We're going to stand on the Word of God. I hope you will and I hope I would. But every day, this is the final authority for what I'm to believe about God, and about myself, about Christ and salvation, about the church and about a call to holiness and about heaven and hell. This is the final word for how I'm to treat my wife, how I'm to relate to you, how I'm to handle my money. Biblical sexuality, this is the final word. Sola Scriptura. Let us with Luther affirm, and with Calvin, and with Zink Zwingli, and Knox, and all of these reformers. Let us affirm sola scriptura, and by God's grace, let it show up every day in our submission to the Word of God. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Let's pray. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. Deuteronomy 29:29. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then shall your way be prosperous, and then you will have success. Joshua 1, 8. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 1. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, Psalm one nineteen. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy three. Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow. In respect to salvation, First Peter two. Oh God. Thank you for your word. It's truthfulness. It's authority. And might we stand strong as Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and others did. But may our strong stance show up every day in the way we treat our family, in the way we relate The workplace, how we conduct our business, how we let the light of Christ shine through us where we live, where we work, where we play, where we're passionate. May our lives, by your grace, through the Holy Spirit, be shaped for your glory and our good by your word. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone as our final authority. We pray for your grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. May God bless you this week. You are loved, and you are dismissed.